Well, this morning we'll be in uh, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 again. And last week, just to give you a quick catch-up, we looked at five things about godly vision. And what we saw there is that God's vision will come to open hearts. It'll It'll be plainly proclaimed. It has an appointed time. It moves in faith, and it rejects the ways of the world. Now we come to the vision that God gave the prophet. Now remember, God's already told him that his instrument of judgment would be a wicked people called the Chaldeans, which Habakkuk goes, I don't get it. And i got to tell you, I don't understand sometimes, let me rephrase that, I don't understand a lot of times the way God works. He works in ways we cannot see, works in ways we don't understand. Uh, from our perspective, it seems... Uh, Reckless, how much he loves us, and yet he has a plan, he has a purpose, he has a, a cause in the midst of all that. Uh, but Habakkuk, in the midst of all that, said, Okay, God, you're God, and you're going to do what's best, and I'm going to trust you with that. And as these prophecies flowed from God through the prophet, we can imagine the people of God going, Yeah, God's going to get the Chaldeans. He's going to take them out eventually. Yeah, they may be used initially to bring us judgment, but God's going to get his in the end. They may have a mighty army. They may be able to decimate their enemies, but God is going to bring judgment on them. But what the people of God didn't realize, at least at first, was they were guilty of the same things that the Chaldeans were guilty of. They too faced the wrath of God as a direct result of their ongoing rebellion Toward God. So what he brings here are five woes. And I want us to look at each one of them kind of quickly, but I want you to see them because this is what happens to folks who choose to live a life apart from God, away from God, out of God's direction. And I also want you to notice there's a progression in these five woes. They start out bad and they get worse and worse. And worse as it goes through. Uh, And then we'll come back and try to bring it together for us. His first woe for the Chaldeans and for the Judeans, and I think for us, is this. He has a woe to thieving people. Look at verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? They, then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Now the first woe centers on a universal truth of people who don't know God. It's a, an issue that we as followers of God still struggle with, but it's definitely endemic and revealed more so, hopefully, in those, in the, who are those who don't know God. Because a heart far from God has a, a tendency toward dominance of those around him, has a tendency to be uh, one who will do whatever it takes to get what they want. You see, the nation of Babylon was a rising superpower, and the way they were rising was through the approach of attack, utterly destroy and then consume what they wanted. So what they would do is they would not come in and like make things hard on people. They would come in and wipe them off the map. 
If you know the history of God's people in Jerusalem, not too long after Habakkuk's prophecies were uttered, that's exactly what happened. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, came in to that area and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. They ended up killing many people in the city. They destroyed the walls, pulled them down, left the city decimated, and took out what they wanted, which was younger adults and people who could be beneficial. They took their wealth. They took their goods. They took their grain. They took whatever they could. You could almost call them human locusts in a lot of ways. They would steal what was not theirs. They would manipulate circumstances to their favor and leave a trail of destruction in their wake. And God tells those people, woe for your actions. Those are not actions of holiness. Those are not actions of godliness. Those are not actions of righteousness. And they are actions that lead nowhere good. You build, you don't build up, you tear down, you don't bless, you curse. But the reality is, this is part of a person who doesn't know God. Time moves on, and we think, oh, that's the way it was back then. That's uh, 2,600 years ago. It sounds just like today, doesn't it? This is how people are. Because until a genuine commitment to God is made and then sought to be lived out, it's just part of the human experience. It's part of the way people are. Because it arises from our inclination to steal what we want, to seek control over others, to get our gain. So the idea of thievery is at the heart of all people. The second woe is a step further. It's a woe to greedy people. Look at verse not verse 2, verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now, following on the heels of woe, number one is the woe, number two. I call this the woe to greedy people seeking unjust gain. The big idea is this. When a person seeks to get what they think they deserve at the expense of others, there will eventually be a pushback in time. It's going to get tough. The imagery here is kind of interesting. Look at the first part of that uh, uh, verse there, verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. Uh, this uh, passage uh, developed into a colloquialism in our, in our language that we sometimes use. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, they're just feathering their own nest? That's the idea here. So imagine with me you've got um, an eagle up high on a cliff, and he's building a nest, or she's building a nest for her young. Where does she get... The supplies for her nest. She goes out and steals them. You're going, well, no, she's just gathering them. Okay, well, you could call a bank robber who just went in and robbed the bank. He was just gathering money. But the reality is they're stealing it. They're taking something for themselves because they want to make their life better or at least try to do that. So that's what the visual here is. As a bird steals from others to construct their nest, so too does the recipient of woe of this woe steal from others to feather their nest. The big idea is this. It's absolutely abhorrent to steal from others to make your life easier. The Chaldeans are pillaging their way across the known world, trying to get what they believe they deserved. Instead of working hard, what are they doing? They're not making an honest living. They're not doing developing an honorable culture. They're not uh, doing what's honorable for for building a nation. Instead, they're taking whatever they want, regardless of the consequences. They didn't give a second thought to the people they killed to get what they wanted. 
And in the end, that approach would bring utter destruction because unless the Lord builds a house, we build in vain. Those who attempt to follow the path may find success for a while, but guess what? In the end, it doesn't work out. And this is an approach that's too common. You know, wars have been fought over territory, over religion, over politics, over natural resources. Human history is filled with this greed, isn't it, to get what we want. The third woe, continuing down this progression, is a woe to violent people. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a house, or excuse me, a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So as our progression continues, we find a third woe centered on what? Violence. So we've moved from theft to greed to violence. Understand the human heart is what? Inherently moral and honorable or inherently wicked? I believe the Bible tells us that it's inherently wicked, inherently sinful. All have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. Not a one of us has to be taught how to be wicked. We get that just by being human. And if we allow that to run its course, we work our way down a progress just like this in this scripture. It's easy to see the immense violence set loose among us by us, isn't it? And whenever a person seeks to establish their kingdom by means of violence, let me tell you what, God's not in that, anywhere in that. Thinking back through our history, it's really easy to see our ugly tendency towards violence. One commentator said this, This was the method of destruction that built Babylon. They became rich by warfare. My friend, if you stand back and look at the history of mankind, you come to the conclusion that he must be insane the way he has lived on this earth. And actually, he is insane. Insane with a sinful nature so that he doesn't even, can't even direct his path. He thinks he's right in what he does. People have never waged war without thinking they're doing the right thing. We see here God's condemnation of Babylon, but it can be stretched out and brought up to date. And fitted like a glove on any modern nation. You see, God looks at people and nations, and yes, even you and me, exhausting ourselves with thievery and greediness and violence, and we find that we get nothing in the end. But there is a ray of hope there. I hope you saw it in verse 14. For as the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's coming today, my friends. Oh, praise God. He's going to set it right. So we've gone for thieving, greedy, violent. Look at number four. Woe to, and you may say, well, that's not very sensitive in a worship service to use that word, but this is probably the best description of what's going on here as a perverted people. I'm aware of small ears, so we'll be careful here. But look at verse 15. Woe to him who masks his neighbor's drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now this fourth woe takes us another step down the road away from God. It speaks of actions of those who are not only perverted, but those who would pervert others. 
Now you've gone from just living their life to now beginning to draw others into the process. You see the progression that's going on here. The specific thought here is of a person who attempts to get someone else intoxicated for the purpose of getting them to expose themselves. Wow. Did you know that was in the Bible? You think, wow. But, but people do this. This is nothing that we've never heard. It's not like we're going, oh, that's never, I've never heard of that. It happens. It also further reveals the pathway that ends in violence. You mean citizens of the Babylonian Empire were known for drunken orgies. This is what they did. They were known for wild parties. They were known for despicable immoral actions. And a direct result of their actions was this. They did things that were even more immoral when they were under the influence. Now God was going to stop all that. Consider this. A few years later, God brought down judgment in the middle of one of those parties. You're going, where did that happen? Daniel chapter 5. Chapter five. Daniel chapter 5. You remember the story? There's a big drunken party going on. Things are getting kind of wild. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it for the sake of time. But understand, in the midst of that, all of a sudden, words begin to appear on the wall. You remember that story? A hand appears and begins to write on the wall. And the king's going, what in the world is that? So he called his wise men, his wizards, his sorcerers in, and they couldn't answer it. Well, Daniel was there. So they brought Daniel in, and Daniel answered it and says, here's what's going to happen. Your kingdom's coming to an end because of the way you live and your rejection of God. God was going to bring about this truth in time. The prophecy from Habakkuk's day was begun to be filled just a few years later. They were going to face destruction. They were going to face demise because God had spoken against them. And God promised to bring about judgment on those people because they refused to listen to him. But I want you to notice a truth that I've already alluded to, but I want you to catch as we continue to the last one. Is while this is focused on the Chaldeans, and you can almost hear God's people going, yeah, go get them. The people of God in Judah were guilty as well. They had allowed other things to become more important than God. Which brings us to woe number five. It's a woe to idolatrous people. Look at verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, we read a passage like that and go, from our Western modern culture and think, why would anybody in their right mind form some metal image or wooden image and decide that's what they're going to worship? That's foreign to us, isn't it? We don't, I mean, we don't have God images of Baal or Dagon from the Old Testament or any of these other things around the world. So we look at this and go, that's just strange. But in their day, this was very common. Every nation had their own God, had their own image that they worship or multiple images. We have stories in the Babylonian Chaldeans taking huge images and expecting the nation to worship. Remember, they were supposed to bow down in the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's day, and they chose what? Not to. Daniel was supposed to kneel down, and he didn't. These idols have no prophet. They speak no truths. They have no lasting influence and positive impact on life. 
but they do influence the moment. They're speechless idols, silent stone, worthless wooden things. And while the Chaldeans were certainly guilty of worshiping those things, so too were the people of God. We looked at that last week or the week before, that God's people worshiped what? They were supposed to worship God, but they worshiped safety, security, that, 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 that sense of peace. You see, the people who settled for all lesser gods ultimately find they settled for a lesser life. God's called the people of Israel to himself so they could build a better life, but they allowed themselves to be led astray. Now, in the end, God's going to sort it all out, but there's going to be a lot of pain along the way. So what do we do with these kind of passages? I don't know about you. I, I love studying the Old Testament. I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm unusual. Okay, weird. But here's the deal. There's some amazing stories back there, and you go, what is he trying to tell us through five woes? Three things I want you to grasp maybe from this. The first one is centered on uh, this idea. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever uh, been in uh, theater or acted on stage. Um, I have a little bit, um, and they turned the lights off for my scene because uh, that was what the script said. But, but I was on stage, and I had lines to share. And, and, and in that moment, who is, who is center stage? Whether the lights are on or not, you're the star at that moment, right? You're the ones that bring that. But I want you to understand God calls us to let him be center stage of our life. He wants to be in the middle of everything that we do. Each of us has a decision that says this, am I going to be in charge or is God? You know, we think we're going to live forever, but we've got a limited number of days. Did you notice this week that uh, former President Carter turned 90? Seven years old. Can I tell you something? The day's going to come that he's going to die. He's lived a long life. The day's going to come when all of us are going to die. At the end of it all, it's not going to matter what we did for ourselves. All that stuff just kind of fades away. We're going to live 70, 80, maybe 90 years, but all of these years rush by. It's so fast, isn't it? You turn around and you go, oh my goodness, I'm not 28 anymore. Some people like to think they're 29 still, but they're not. So while it's called today, we have a choice to make. Are you going to answer the call of God to follow his ways? Are you going to chart your own course? Are you going to let him be center stage, or are you going to try to be the star of your life? See, we live in a culture where it's almost ingrained, isn't it, in us, that we are in charge. We get to decide, this is what I'm going to do. We ask children, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, the old joke to that is because they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives now that they are grown up. But the reality is, why do we do that? The answer to that question is not, I want to be a fireman or a policeman or a rock star. I want to be what God wants me to be as a child of God. We don't force our way. As children of God, we don't live with greed that says, here's what I'm going to have. We don't go looking for another God. We create our own God in the process, but we let God be God. You know, we live in a day where a lot of people are trying to create their own reality. You know, people say, well, I identify as, and you're supposed to accept that as reality because that's who they identify. So here's what I want you to know. I'm going to identify today publicly as a thin American. That's my reality. Y'all with me? 
How dare you question my reality? You would think I'm nuts if I did that in seriousness. And yet, all across our culture, we tolerate that. Because in that process, we're putting who in the center of the stage? Ourselves, not God. The psalmist in 127 said this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, you can waste your days away. You can work your fingers to the bone. But none of that makes sense if God isn't in the center of it all. You know, we get to the end of our lives sometimes. I have these conversations with different people and they they think, why, why am I still here? Why am I still in the midst of this? Why? Am, and the reality is it's because God's given you the opportunity still to put him in the center, and he's given you an opportunity to make a difference in other people's lives. You have that time. Use that time. The Chaldeans were going to discover their approach to life wasn't lasting. Neither was the approach to the people of Judah. And by the way, unless God is at the center of our lives, what we do won't, mass, won't matter and won't last. Second thought I want you to get. We need to avoid immoral living at all costs. At all costs. One of the big things these five woes struck me with was this, the steady decline into utter immoral behavior. Did you catch that progression as it went through it? It got worse and worse and worse. You begin with theft, you got to greed, you got to violence, you got to perversion, and finally idolatry. You move from being a person doing their own things to start worshiping something that makes no difference. When a person rejects the loving offer of God for new life, leading to him... Uh, have him lead their days, there is a natural progression away from the things of God. Without God, that's where we go. It's a short road from tolerance to acceptance to where we finally begin to celebrate the immorality. We live in a day where standards have so rapidly declined. Uh, You know, this will surprise almost no one in the room, but when I was a kid uh, in Arkansas, so that would have been before seven, I remember going to daycare now, I've got to tell you, I don't remember what I said, but I remember to this day the taste of that soap that they used on me. And yet today I would dare venture to say that the word I have probably used is one we just have no problem with anymore. In the span of 50 years, the things we tolerate. I'm talking about us in the church, tolerate has changed. We look the other way. What was not once clearly sin is now just to, not just tolerated, but we're asked to celebrate it now. Please understand, I, 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 I understand and believe with all my heart that lost people act like lost people because they're what? Because they're lost. That, that's what they are. But let me tell you what, dear friend, child of God, surrendered to holy Jesus, we're supposed to be the opposite. He's called us to a high calling, a calling avoiding immorality at all costs. Somewhere we've got to decide that we're not going to live down to the standard of the world, but we're going to live up to the standard of the Lord and say, God, I'm going to live for you, for God in the center of it all. 
Listen to what Paul said to the Thessalonians. I read part of it in our prayer time, but I want you to see a broader part of it. Verse 1 says this in 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he says a lot of things about morality and holiness, and he comes down to verse 7 and sums it up and says, For God has not called us to what? For impurity. But holiness. He wrote those words to the church of the living God because we are called to a higher standard. Please understand the most loving thing we can do, I believe, is to avoid immoral living at all costs so we can be holy vessels used by God. God wants to use a holy vessels. And that's our calling. One more thought. And it comes from that image of the eagle's nest up on the edge of the ledge. You know, we're going to fill our lives with something, aren't we? We're going to feather our nests, is how the phrase goes. I just want to challenge you to be a person who feathers your nest with godly things. The ancient Chaldeans, the ancient Judeans, both were more interested in filling their lives with items and actions and stuff that had no eternal significance. Let me say this with all love and compassion. Many of us do the exact same thing. That's not how we're called to live. We're called to fill our lives with good things, godly things, moral things, holy things. Over the book of James, we find the focus of true religion. We love part of this verse, the second part we like to ignore. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. And we can quote this without even looking at the screen, right? To what? To visit orphans? And widows in their affliction. Oh, we've got to care for the widows and orphans. And then we put a period. But in the English translation, it's a comma. And it says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's two areas of focus here. Care for those who can't care for themselves. Man, you and me, as children of God, we need to be people who are out there doing everything we can to change the lives of those who are unfortunate or in difficult circumstances that need help. To help the orphans, the widows, those who are struggling financially, those who are struggling with issues in their life, we need to be there for them. You go, well, that's what the pastor's for. No, listen, friends, that's what we're here for. That's our job, all together. And the other side of it is this, living above the stain of sin that is so prevalent in our world. We do that because we want to reveal God. So here's what I want you to catch. Really the thought we want you to see, and we've been talking about as a church for years now, is that we want to what? Love God and love people. If we're loving God, we're going to be loving people. If we're loving God, we're going to be living for God. If we're loving God, we're going to be living for the things that he wants us to be a part of. And the focus should affect every single area of our life. You go, oh, I got my religious part done. Religion that is pure and defiled, I've got figured out. No, I want you to understand, I really believe with all of my heart it's bigger than that. It goes down into our medical choices. It goes into our marriage choices, our dating choices, how we deal with finances, how we deal with health issues, how we deal with social issues. All of that stuff comes into this process. Because all of that, let's be honest, is who we are, isn't it? I'm not just a religion. I'm a person who has an impact, hopefully, in the world, just like you do. 
But if you're going to do all that, what do you got to start with? A relationship with Jesus. We want to give you an opportunity today to respond. Maybe you need to trust him so you can go live the life that he has for you. We want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you need to make some other kind of decision. Maybe you need to come and pray at an altar. I, I, I would not dare try to say what God is saying to you. Because his Holy Spirit speaks to his people. But listen, don't put off what decisions you need to make. Let him live for you. Let him let you live for him and him live through you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered in your name today. Father, we look at a passage like this and we say, whoa, I don't know. But God, you, you spoke those words through Habakkuk to a people who were your people, but they weren't living for you. And they were going to face some serious hardships ahead because of that. Father, I wouldn't say that we're facing hardships as Christians just yet, but we may someday. And we want to be a people who are ready, prepared, committed to you, living holy lives, moral lives, honorable lives, loving you and loving each other and loving the people around. We pray for those who need to respond in some way to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.